Okay, let's pray. Father, we want to pray that you'd speak to us now. We know and love you for the fact that you speak to us uh, in prophetic words, Lord, in quiet voices in our mind, through the counsel of other Christians. But we thank you that main way you speak to us is through the Bible, and we want to pray that you would do that now. Amen. So, uh, if you uh, haven't been with us, we've been working our way through St. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and uh, we have... Uh, arrived almost at the end. So this is actually the second to last week, the penultimate week of our look at this letter. And we've gone all the way through loads of issues. We've looked at uh, unity and factions and divisions, very, very pertinent given our political climate. We've looked at sexual ethics, at the problems of power. We've looked at the Holy Spirit and how he uh, leads and guides and equips us to do Jesus' work, to fight against evil, to resist darkness, to fight against sin in our own lives, and to encourage one another. And having looked at all of that, we're now arriving at what in a sense is the kind of peak of all of this, which is the ultimate basis for believing that there is good and that good will triumph. In a sense, everything else in this letter leads to this point and receives meaning from this point. I would go further than that. It's common in society now to see little uh, quotes. You see them on Twitter or on Facebook or on t-shirts. And they run along something on the lines of love wins or love trumps hate or something like that. And I want to always want to ask the question when I see someone who is wearing one of these t-shirts, why is it you believe that? Now I do believe that to be true. But why is it that we believe that good will win? I want to suggest that people do believe that good will win. In almost every story we tell ourselves, good triumphs over evil. Uh, take the, uh, a lot of you will know, I'm very fond of superhero movies. Uh, that in every single superhero movie, and Marvel has taken somewhere in the region of, I think now, three or four billion dollars making these movies. Billion dollars making these movies, let alone everything else, Star Wars and the rest of it. Every single one of these movies has the same basic idea, which is that there is a war between good and evil, and in the end, good wins. Right? Usually, through someone who behaves like Jesus. Right? I actually watched Wonder Woman the other day. love Wonder Woman. I'm an equal opportunity superhero fan. Love Wonder Woman. Bought Heather a Wonder Woman t-shirt afterwards. She's only worn it twice. But she did look good. Even Wonder Woman, you'd think, how can Wonder Woman be a retelling of the story of Jesus? If you watch that movie, at the end, there is this guy who is uh, the devil, basically. And I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but again, if you've seen any of these films, you'll know how they end. Good wins. Uh, In the end, Wonder Woman's fighting this guy. She starts quoting stuff that is almost a word-for-word quote of 1 John about about love uh, and hope. And then rises in the air while he tries to kill her, literally in the shape of a cross... Okay, Superman does this all the time, right? You watch, you can't watch a Superman film without him at some point being in the air like this as all the, as all the baddies attack him. I can see you nodding, brother, right? You start to notice these things, right? Wonder Woman's in the air like this, and he zaps her, and she absorbs all the power and all the hatred, all the and then she says, "Love wins," and she smacks down the baddie and destroys him, right? Victory, 
For good over darkness, for light over darkness, for good over evil, for hope over despair. And we tell each other these stories, you know, even in a society that's becoming, perhaps even especially in a society in the West that's losing contact with its religious history, with its philosophical history, and, and, and needs roots, we tell us, take, keep telling ourselves the story of Jesus, but we just put different clothes on it. We all believe this to be true, and the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why do we believe that good will triumph over evil? Because if you don't believe in a God, and you don't believe in the story of Jesus, then that's a real problem for you. It's a real problem. You actually see this in contemporary politics. In uh, secular politics, particularly I would say in America, one has this sense, and uh, one got a sense after the election of Donald Trump. Now I'm not about to comment on whether I like Donald Trump or dislike Donald Trump, and that's not my place. But I just observed that there were a group of people, a very large group of people, who strongly believe that Donald Trump is almost the embodiment of evil. And you can see that they really struggled to cope with him being elected. Because how could it happen? We all believe that good trumps evil. Love trumps hate. So how could this man we so strongly disagree with be elected? And because they didn't, you know, a lot of these people didn't have a religious sensibility, you can see they struggle to articulate, a lot of the anger that came out of that, I think we're struggling to articulate, we can't work out why we think this should happen, but we believe it should, and now this, you know, something's happened to, to, to challenge us. And actually, I want to suggest that there is a very, very good reason for believing that it's not simply the strongest who win. That it's not simply the person with the biggest stick who ends up governing the day. That hate will not triumph. That darkness is not the final word. That disease will be overcome. That life will triumph over death. But the reason we believe all of that is not just hopefulness, but Jesus. You know, for Christians, the reason for optimism, the reason for being people of hope, the reason for not despairing when your political opponent is elected to office, or even when somebody truly evil uh, comes to power, and in the 20th century, particularly in regimes that forgot God, or were particularly anti-God, I think of uh, fascist Germany, uh, communist Russia, communist China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, in these regimes which had decided there was no God and that the strongest would be the one who triumphed, even when that happens, Christians can have hope. Because of Jesus. You know, uh, in Nazi Germany, for example, in the midst of the darkness of that, one of the darkest days in human history, it was Christian pastors in the concentration camps who were saying, it is not the final word. This is not the final word on humanity. This man will be full face judgment and we believe that love will win over hate. And we believe it because we believe in Jesus. It's important. It's important. It's foundational. We're going to read uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment where Paul talks about this. But the point I want you to take away from this is that the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest, most sure, and most hopeful fact of human history. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest, most certain, and most hopeful fact of human history. I want to get preaching, but I'm going to read the Bible first. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. Now this is a really long passage, uh, so bear with me while I read it. But it's good to read the Bible because this is the word of God. 
and it's eternally true. So for those of you who don't know where 1 Corinthians 15 is, I'm on page 1156. I'm also going to put the words on the screen. And this is St. Paul writing to one of the earliest Christian churches. These, uh, we think this letter is written about 50 to 60 AD. So it's very, very, very early. It's extremely well attested in the uh, New Testament. He writes this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, of the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you firmly hold to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you believed in vain. For what I I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's to Peter. It's another, it's a Greek way of saying Peter. And then to the twelve. After that... He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all he appeared to me also, that's to St. Paul, as to one abnormally born. For I am least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what we believe. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no... Sorry, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God uh, that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise Christ from the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised... For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. You get the sense that Paul wants them to understand. He says the same thing six times. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear that this doesn't include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under Christ. Sorry. God who... Sorry, I've lost where I am.
Sorry, say that again. Uh, when he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. I'm sorry. I will confess, as a pastor, I take a lot of funerals, and this passage is very meaningful to me. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Oh foolish, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, just as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives it its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and the stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it's written, the, last, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The man, the first man was of the dust, was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are made of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are, bo- are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must close itself with the perishable, the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's the word of God. Thanks for listening to that. I know it was a long reading. I'm not going to speak for long because I want us to take communion and to have a chance to actually come and to affirm our belief in the resurrection. What I want to make is three simple points. The first is that the resurrection of the dead is true because Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. It's tempting to think of Christianity as a great tradition of teaching, and it is. 
It is the single greatest body of teaching in the history of the world, if you include the Jewish uh, scriptures as well. It dates back something like four or five thousand years uh, to when Genesis was written and goes all the way through to now. The greatest minds in Western history and in Eastern history have contributed to it. It is a great tradition of teaching, but it is not simply a great tradition of teaching. It is tempting to think that Christianity is a great social movement, and it is a great social movement. It has led to, the, to improvements in the position of women and minorities in societies wherever it has gone. Uh, a group of sociologists at the University of Chicago five years ago, uh, sorry, about eight years ago, uh, did a study and uh, they found that if you tracked the course of the global south, the best predictor for the position of women in society, the best predictor for women having a more respected position in society was where the Protestant missionaries had gone there 150 years ago. It's not to justify colonialism. There are a lot of wickeds and evils that are done with it. It is simply to make the point that has been true for 2,000 years that wherever Christianity has gone, social conditions have improved. It is the single greatest reforming movement in the history of the world. Indeed, the Enlightenment, which gives us so much of our uh, good now, uh, modern science is rooted in a Christian understanding of the world. And its pioneers were all Christians. Almost without exception. But it is not simply the greatest social movement in the history of the world. Christianity is not simply a mystical faith. Although it is a mystical faith. Men and women encounter God in powerful ways now. They meet with Jesus. Liz told us how actually she was supernaturally enabled to, to speak into somebody, a stranger's life, and to speak God's word to them so that they were able to move forward. And that has happened in this church almost every week. It happens in this church. We've seen people healed of stuff. We've seen people who are not healed of stuff walking through it with strength because of their neighbours and their friends who love them from the church. But it is not simply a mystical religion like Buddhism or another spiritual experience. Christianity is above all a claim about something that really happened. For Christians, Jesus really was dead really was buried and really did come to life. Uh, I've, had, I've gone and had coffee with friends of mine, particularly guys who I've been ministering to, and you can see I'm talking to them. They're not Christians, but they just want to chat because they don't have anyone to talk to. So I'm sort of their pastoral priest. They will actually tell their friends I'm their pastoral priest, even though they don't know if they believe in God. And I'm having, sitting there having a chat, and you can see they're talking, I'm talking to them, and they're, they're asking me how my day's been or my week's been, and I start to tell them some of the stuff. And I say, I know it sounds weird. They're like, yeah, it does sound weird. Your job's weird, Phil. Uh, you're just weird. I said, yeah, but it's all weird. It's all weird, right? We genuinely believe that there was this Jewish guy that he really lived 2,000 years ago. Incidentally, almost every serious historian agrees with that. And that he really did die, and that he really did come to life. I mean, it doesn't get weirder than that. But it happens to be true. It happens to be true. We genuinely believe it's true. It's had 2,000 years of hostile critics from within uh, Western Europe, from outside Western Europe, of engagement with Islam, of engagement with various pagan religions, of engagement with uh, Judaism, of engagement latterly with atheism. It's a very new and shrinking phenomenon. 
all over the world, people have attacked Christianity, and the central way that you attack Christianity is to try and disprove the resurrection of Jesus, and in 2,000 years, no one has come up with a plausible explanation. Most of the time, you might think to yourself, well, why isn't everyone a Christian then? It's a good question. The answer is, one third of the world's population is. That's not bad going, two billion people. But, most of the time, we just don't think about it. I want to challenge you, if you're in that position this morning, maybe you're here and you think, I like the way you teach, Phil, no one else takes seriously uh, sexual ethics, or at least manages to persuade people to listen to them talk about them for 40 minutes at a time on a a Sunday morning. I like how you teach, I can see that in St. Paul or in Augustine or in uh, any of the uh, Western tradition, there is great wisdom there, there's great wisdom in the Jewish tradition, and I like it, but I'm not sure if it's true, I want to challenge you to find out whether you really believe Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, you can do that, you can explore it in various ways. I've got books here. These are, you might expect that people would have written this. Each one of these books is written by somebody who was a skeptic. You can borrow them, they're from the church. I'm going to leave them at the back, you can take them away as long as you bring them back. I am very happy for you to keep them for as long as you like. A journalist. A legal journalist, sceptical atheist, legal journalist, investigated whether Jesus rose from the dead, uh, became a Christian, wrote a book about it. Case for Christ. English academic, sceptical about religion, had to explain to his students about the resurrection, investigated it, became convinced, wrote a book about it. That's Frank Morrison, who moved the stone. This is a different one. This is for those of you who feel like you want to have your chops really challenged academically. This is by uh, William Craig. He's a professor of uh, philosophy and religion in America. He's got something like, I think, three PhDs in different areas of study. Uh, Debates atheists all over the world. Uh, Investigated the claims of religion. Uh, Yeah, I'm looking here at his PhDs. He's got two on the back of there, and that was by 1994. I'm pretty sure he's got another two now. Oh, no, three. Three on the back of here. So that was by 1994 he had three PhDs. He wrote a book of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. This is William Craig's book. Again, that's at the back. You can get that. This is a very accessible one. If you think to yourself, it's all very well, Phil, but I don't want to read a philosophy professor. If I wanted to do that, I would have stayed at home. I came to church because I like Heather's singing. This is one by Josh McDowell. He works with students. Again, was an atheist, vehemently disagreed with religion, came to investigate the claims of Jesus. And uh, when he was uh, working on a university campus, has the most extraordinary testimony. Discovered the resurrection was true, met Jesus, and had reconciliation with his father, with whom he'd been in a bitter feud for years. Wrote a book about it. It's designed for young people. So take that away. That's the resurrection factor. My point is... It is true, it is well investigated, people investigate this stuff and they actually become Christians, right? Because it's true. The resurrection of Jesus really happened. I was going to show you a video, we don't have time for it now, but I want you to go away and check it out yourself. I'm going to put the video online. The resurrection of Jesus really happened and it really matters. It really matters because if Jesus is alive, if Jesus was raised from the dead by God, then there is good reason to believe that death is defeated. matters because it shows that God can, has, and will overcome death. Death is the great enemy of humanity. One in one will die. From every tradition, colour, tribe, race, gender, sexual orientation, 
we will all face the same enemy at the end. I'm sorry it sounds bleak to say that. We live in a society that doesn't like to talk about this stuff, that hides from it. But it's real. And you can't hide from it. And because of Jesus Christ, we can know that death is not the final word. And take it from me, as somebody who has taken a number of funerals this year and will take a number next year, ultimately there is nothing more important in the universe than that. Death is not the final word on humanity because Jesus Christ is alive. You know, there are people in this room who are losing relatives. There will be. I'm going to visit someone tomorrow who was not expected to last, I would think, the week in hospital. You've got to know, friends, there is hope because Jesus is alive. Death is defeated, evil is overcome. It matters because it shows that evil will be overcome. When Jesus died, everything that humanity does to each other is exemplified in his death. Injustice. He was accused of something he didn't do and stitched up for political convenience. He was violently executed by a people who glorified and loved loved violence. He was surrounded by bitterness and hatred. He was condemned for the sake of jealousy by a man who was greedy. Lest we stand and throw stones at them, I would encourage each one of us to look into our own hearts and to see there that actually the seeds of these things lie within every single human heart. And yet, the resurrection of Jesus shows that God is capable of absorbing all of that bitterness and hatred, jealousy and envy, unkind words and unkind actions, unkind thoughts and deeds, and overcoming them. It was as if God stood there and said, do your worst, and then was still standing. There is a reason why the, video, the image for this series is of a boxer in the ring, victorious. I picked it because that is what happens in the resurrection of Jesus. He is standing there saying, you guys, you have so much bad stuff that you put into each other, but I can take it and overcome it. If I leave you to your own devices, you will come to a century in which you kill hundreds of millions of your fellow human beings. But I can overcome that. Evil is overcome. The problem with death is that it foreshadows justice. It foreshortens justice, rather. We look at the world and we say it is not fair. And we are right. Within this world, this is not a just world. People who believe in karma are kidding themselves. Because evil happens and it is often not repaid in this life. You only have to look at the news to know that's true. And yet in the resurrection of Jesus we see God saying this is not the final word. Even if as a result of the evil of human hearts people die, yet I am able to overcome death. It matters because it shows that love is the final word of God on humanity and not death. It matters because it shows that we are not ultimately left to be people of hatred but of love. 
that God is not ultimately a God who glorifies in hatred but in love. There are no more powerful words in the Holy Scriptures than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on a cross, condemned by people he made, saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. The final word on humanity is not hatred, but love. The love of God cannot be defeated. Love is a winning strategy. Why am I saying this to you? If Jesus Christ is alive, it changes everything. It means that we should repent and have faith. Stop the way that we live and start living differently. St. Paul writes to the Romans, the whole law is fulfilled in this one commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. If Jesus Christ has risen from the death, dead, if love is a winning strategy, if hope triumphs over hate, if life triumphs over death, we should align ourselves with love. It's funny having children um, when you're watching football with them. They will change who they are supporting in the football game based upon who is winning. Now, it drives me nuts. I'm trying to say to them, guys, we support Spurs. And they're like, no, I support, I, I support, I support Liverpool. Why? Because they're 3-0 up. <laughs> like, right? It drives me mad. Right? And eventually they'll learn. But they're rational. Let me put it this way. If life overcomes death, love overcomes evil, and Jesus is the Lord of all the universe, whom not even death can overcome, join the winning team. Get with the program. Let me tell you, as a Spurs fan, it sucks to keep losing. Why stay on the side of death if Jesus is alive? It matters because it teaches us to choose hope. Whatever is happening in the world or in your life, if it is bad, is not the final word on your life. There is hope because Christ has overcome death. So be hopeful. Don't despair. Set your face to worship even in the worst of times. And finally, choose love. Paul says at the end, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of doing the Lord. It will not always be met with overjoyed, with joy from others. Jesus wasn't. Nevertheless, choose to love people. Choose to love people.